Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome back. Are you all recovered from our month-long Hudsonian binge Well, come in. Drop your weather gear. Yes, 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 it is monsooning here again in Chicago. I'm Lawrence Santoro. This is The Nook, is Tales to Terrify, is, in the larger sense, the District of Wonders. So, grab some treats, find a chum to snuggle with, because, well, because we've got two tales to terrify tonight. Count them, two I got used to thinking I was saying very little over the last month of The House in the Borderland. Revisiting the archives, however, tells me that, without a doubt, I did not keep myself on low audibility. So tonight, tonight I will keep that promise. Our first quivery tale of the night is by Mr. A.P. Matlock. A.P. Matlock is Canadian. He is a writer obviously, and the editor of Black Treacle magazine. Black Treacle is a free magazine of horror, dark fantasy, and speculative fiction. Published on a monthly schedule, each issue includes four to five pieces of original short fiction. It exists primarily to provide a forum for new writers to share their works and, quite honestly, to give preference to Canadian writers. The magazine is published both on the web and in popular ebook formats for easy reading on the device of your choice. You may touch bases with him on his blog, http colon slash slash matlock dot ca. That's M A T L O C K. 
That'll be on our Facebook page and our Tales to Terrify homepage. Now, here is Still She Screams by A.P. Matlock. Still She Screams by A.P. Matlock I only have two bullets left, but I count them every day. Seems silly, right? But I wake around dawn, or at least what I perceive is dawn, and the first thing I do is count those bullets. Are there better things to inventory? I can count our dwindling food stocks. Why I still refer to them as our is a cruel irony. Maybe cross the days off the calendar. How many has it been? I could even measure the water remaining in our cistern. Each of those choices seemed just as morbid as the one I turned over in my head every morning. They were just slower ways of realizing the end. Counting the bullets made me feel that I had some control over the situation. Every morning I had the power to choose, and every morning I put them back in the chamber of the revolver and tucked it into my belt. Water drips from the ceiling of this concrete tomb, and I hear her wails from deeper in the shelter— I keep the door to her room shut, but her screams still get through. There is never silence. She was such a beautiful woman once. When I pulled her from their hungry jaws, they tore a chunk of flesh from her apple-red cheeks. Oh, how it bled as I dragged her down the shaft. I laid her on the cold concrete, shivering, before I welded the heavy metal hatch shut. I left the door unlocked. She wasn't the same after that. The wound festered on her face and put her in a deep fever. I did the best I could. Each day I changed her dressings while she slumbered. I cleaned the dark yellow pus out of the wound. It didn't matter. Her face slowly rotted and oozed, and I stayed by her side. I had two bullets left now. I think back. Choices. There was a group of them on her when I entered the kitchen. I was quick. Three flashes and three down. The gun was so loud and the smell of gunpowder burnt my nostrils. Shooting the last one was too risky. I might have hit her. Now I wonder if it would have been better to take that risk. Still, she doesn't judge me. She is not capable of judging me any more. She woke from the fever with dead eyes, milky and gray. I can only see my reflection in them. No longer spark in those eyes. No recognition of me. She tried to attack me when she first awoke. She moved so fast. At first, I thought the ropes I had bound her with were not going to hold. I sat there in a chair next to the bed, and she got close enough to my face that I could smell the decay. I wrestled her back into the bed. This time, the ropes were tighter. All she could do was wiggle and scream. That scream. It had been constant. Gagging her did not help. It reached every corner of the shelter. I would plug my ears and yell and sing, and still it would pierce through. She doesn't judge me, but she is evidence of a bad choice. I stand at the foot of her bed while she screams and screams, and I level the pistol at her head. I can't do it. I love you. Somehow I can manage to fall asleep each night, and I think tomorrow will be the day I'd do it. I'd have the strength. I dreamt of her when I closed my eyes. As the days progressed, she grew weaker. She needed nourishment just as I did. I wasn't willing to give her what would satiate her hunger. 
I ate cans of cold beans while she wasted away. Soon she was just sinew and shrunken muscle, her face pulled tight like a drum, her lips no longer closed, and exposed her rotting teeth. I remember her smile, now contorted into a grin. I wanted her to waste away. Each day I wished it. Still she screamed. Today is going to be the day. I put the bullets in the chamber and walked to her room. I open the door wide and she looks directly towards me. Today is the day. I raise the revolver up and settle the iron sight on her forehead. I close my eyes and take a deep breath. I squeeze the trigger and the hammer falls. A loud bang. Then silence. Terrifying silence. When I open my eyes again, she screams at me. My aim strayed, or she moved her head, I don't know. The bullet had smashed into her chin and blew her jaw off. A piece of it still dangled by her face, held by a paper-thin string of flesh. Her tongue wiggles like a black leech as she wails. She was so beautiful once. I keep my eyes open for the next shot. She is no longer someone I recognize, no longer human. I don't know what she is. This time my aim is true, and the bullet enters into her forehead. Her head is thrown back as the bullet exits. A spray of blood speckles the wall behind her. I drop the gun, it's of no use anymore, and walk to the side of her bed. I close her eyelids and feel coldness on the tips of my fingers. I don't want to look at those eyes anymore. The bullet has left a neat little hole just above the bridge of her thin nose. I grasp her head and inspect the exit wound. A large piece of the skull is missing. Her eyes start to flutter. A gurgle comes from her throat and her tongue twitches. The brain is intact. If nothing else, that should teach you to watch what you're doing. Yes. Yes. And thank you for that, A.P. It's a lovely tale of a somewhat shifted inevitability. Yes? Yes. And thank you, Wilson Fowley, who read Still She Screams. Wilson lives in Vancouver, Canada, with his wife and two children— by day, he says he programs computers for a living, and by night, well, by some nights, he says, he's the director of a community show chorus. In his spare time, he narrates stories for various podcasts, which, of course, includes us. He intends to record a voiceover demo any day now. No, really? Our second tale of the evening is by Mr. Armand Rosamilia. I have been meaning to run Armand's story, this story, for, well, for quite some time. Armand is a native New Jersey boy now living in sunny Florida where he chases his loving children, drives his fiancée nuts with stupid trivia and stupidity, and watches the Boston Red Sox devoutly and claims their series win is owed to his dedicated fandom. 
He loves heavy metal in all its glory and reads way too many zombie horror stories. He's an editor for Rimfire Books and is the creator, owner of Carnifex Metal eBooks. Here, then, is Rain Forest of Bones by Armand Rosamilia. My guide through the rainforest, Julio, died in his sleep last night. Staring at his body, I can see no obvious marks, no blood. But I can smell him rotting. I'm not a doctor, but I've written several articles over the years about the unjust cases of medical neglect in South America. I was currently in the midst of chasing a ghost, as it were, the great Raul Inez who disappeared 13 months ago in the rainforest outside of Manaus, Brazil. I knew the story would be popular. This supposed madman, who'd claimed that the skeletons in his office at Universidad Federal de Rio de Janeiro were talking to him and telling him to make camp in the jungle. Harper's Magazine had given me the seed money to begin this quest, since no one else was insane enough to risk disease, death, and possibly being lost for good in the Selva Amazonica. Being of Brazilian birth, but living my teen and adult life in Southern California, I was hesitantly allowed to ask questions and move among the locals without too much prejudice. However, one wrong word or move could land me in hot water with the Policia Federal, and I had no desire to spend a minute in a Brazilian jail. I do my best to mark on the map where my current location is, knowing that by the time I escape the jungle, Julio's body will be long gone, dragged into the underbrush by one of 2,000 birds and mammals that make their home in the Amazon. With nothing else to do, I gather all the supplies I can safely carry and keep on the imaginary trail before me. Not wanting to become the guinea pig for another jungle fever, I'd gotten every shot known to modern medicine before I left. But there is always some leech or insect that will find exposed skin and subject you to the latest, or oldest, disease that man has no cure for. I know I am close, within a day and night of a small unmarked village where Raoul had been spotted bartering for food only six weeks past. With the machete my sole companion now, I move slowly but steadily. How many of these annoying bugs flying around me are undiscovered and unclassified? Perhaps that could be my next paper. Turning back would be the smartest move, but I can't. I've come too far. Behind me, a wall of fronds, trees, and brush, that even with my scribblings on the map, would be near impossible to navigate through successfully without Julio. I must press forward. The village is empty, I know it immediately because the central fire pit is cold, ashes flickering in the warm breeze and disappearing into the dense brush that surrounds the nine makeshift huts. I call out anyway and feel foolish as the only response is my echo. I am checking the huts and noticing that they've been stripped of anything usable when I walk past the burial mounds of the village. They have been dug up, dirt piled haphazardly. The many holes are empty. With only one rational choice, I press on. How many would have died by now? 
My experience has been a blessing, my stubbornness a curse. Survival is starting to come natural in this jungle, because I've done it before. Maybe not in these very acres, but I remind myself that I am a world traveler and have written articles about so many pieces of the South American puzzle. I'm trying to wrap my head around this part of the puzzle when I know I'm being watched. He is a small boy, and he is bleeding. His arm hangs limply at his side, and I realize with horror that his skin has been shredded clean off as, as if boiled and cauterized. I ask him his name, but he keeps saying the same word over and over. Belzebu. In Portuguese, he is saying devil. I am at a loss to know how to help him. I tell him to come with me, but he refuses, so I finally ask where I might find Belzebu. He scrunches his face and points in the direction I'm heading. I don't know if that is a good sign or a bad one. I admit too late that without Julio, I am lost. There are no clear roads, markers, or cuts in the trees, as you would see in the movies. As I cut through the green wall before me, I am reminded of my article I wrote last year about El Camino del Muerte, the Bolivian Road of Death. The road stretches ninety miles and is the world's most dangerous highway. Going over the side usually means death. It sometimes takes hours for rescue teams to locate the injured and dying. I saw firsthand when I traveled the road a busload of passengers dangling precariously over the drop, death waiting to meet them hundreds of feet below in the dense underbrush. Able to do nothing, I watched as the ancient carrier slid foot by foot into the chasm. I took a picture as it slid into nothingness. A small child pressed against the back door of the bus with the look of resignation that an old man might have. The little boy I left behind had that look. He knew his lot in life was hopeless. I swing with abandon now, cutting away the fear I know is risen in my chest. There is a Portuguese saying about turning fear into a positive, but I can't think of it right now. I'm too busy driving toward either death or the biggest story of my life. Perhaps both? Quem não arisca, não petisca. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. I chop a large frond before me and gasp when I see a worn trail. There are so many footprints that it runs together, a rut through the dirt and mud. Cutting across it in several spots are the prints of large cats, most likely El Bracatus, or Pompous Cat. In 1995, I did a study of the three distinct species of Pompous Cat and this specific one, which is found in Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay. I hope to not literally cross the path of one. There is a rushing waterfall within a half mile. I am following the path, and I ignore the swarming insects that plague me. My body is bitten, and red bruises cover my arms, neck, and face. The urge to scratch is strong, but I mustn't give in. With the dirt and grime under my fingernails, the risk of infection is too great. The machete is getting heavy and useless, so I stow it on my back and drink the last drops of water from my canteen. At this point, I'm either very close to Raoul or so far off course that I'll be dead soon. I begin to map out my obituary in my head, and I attempt to list all of my many articles and accomplishments in order of importance. I've had such a storied career that I suppose a half-page obit would be in order, 
with that picture of me standing at the Kauseon Megalithic Observatory, or Amazon Stonehenge, as it's aptly named. I was there on December 21st, the shortest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. I still remember the grin etched on my face when I saw one of the block's shadows disappear. Quite spectacular, really. I stop when my feet hit pavement, and I am stunned. Have I just stepped off the proverbial beaten path and under the streets of a heretofore hidden city? I don't know, because the ground rushes up and punches me squarely in the face. He is a taparape, and I try to smile at the shaman, but my head is in so much pain it hurts to move even that much. I am surrounded by two score armed taparape, and they don't look friendly to me. When dealing with local tribes, the best thing to do is look friendly, don't make sudden movements, and try to spot an escape route. I'm lying on the ground, stripped to my underwear, and I know I've been clubbed in the head. I can feel the blood oozing from my lump, my hair coated with my own gore. At least I can't make any sudden movements without possibly passing out. As I roll over and attempt to rise, a bare foot is planted gently but firmly on my side, and I stop. The shaman whispers something to me, but my Portuguese isn't what it used to be, and his local dialect is too severe for me to understand. I wish I'd been better prepared for this trip. My arrogance has defeated me. Even though I've been here for assignments many times, I assumed my legend preceded me, and I could get by. Now I'm wondering if I'll get out alive. The crowd parts and Raul Inez is before me, reaching for me with strong, weathered hands. I stand and the world goes black for a moment, but Raul is holding me firmly, despite him being twenty years my age and at least thirty pounds lighter, and a full head shorter. You're good, no? Raul. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to eighty percent less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. ...says in broken English. I frowned because he knew I was American, even though I was born in Brazil. To the outside world, I will always be of South American descent with my tight curly hair and creamy mocha skin. To a Brazilian, I am the outsider, polished and shaped by a foreign country. I may as well have a birth certificate from San Diego or Chicago for all they care. I realize that as I stare into his eyes and see him watching me warily. I once toured through the Americas with a Brazilian musical group named Sepultura, Portuguese for grave, who chugged out an alarmingly brutal roar akin to heavy metal, but infused their own upbringing into the sound. The lead singer, Max Cavalera, traveled to Mato Grosso, Brazil, to visit the Zavante tribe. He wanted to get back to his roots and remember the sounds of his people. I was lucky enough to be with him on this trip, and the resulting Sepultura album, Roots, and my article in Rolling Stone, made for an excellent match. I realized at this moment that I was being accepted into Brazilian society, then, as always, because I could further an agenda. I was mistaken to think that the Brazilians and South Americans thought of me as their own, someone who had succeeded from the jungles and conquered the outside world. They were just like every other human on the planet, biting their tongue, smiling at my jokes and inanities, and answering my questions. Raul Inez had to do no such things. I was at his mercy, and it scared me. The natives ring around me and Raul, weapons still drawn and aimed at me. I swallow bile and try to remain calm, but I am far from it. I've come in search of you, Raul Inez. I will myself to remain standing. Me, he says, with a lilt in his voice, and turns to the savages around us, speaking in quick, clipped speech that I fail to understand. No one smiles, laughs, or answers him. I see they are also filled with fear, fear of Raoul. Mouth dry and sticky, stomach threatening to devour itself, I refuse to show my weakness and ask for food or water. And who are you? Raoul says as the smile drops from his brown face, wrinkles creasing around his animated eyes. American policemen coming to handcuff me? I was born in Brazil, I say, and hear my Americanized accent the slow, easy drawl of a SoCal upbringing. And you left when you were one, two, three, eleven, I say, and hear the hitch in my voice. Swallowing the lump in my throat, I add, no fault of my own. Raoul waves his hand dismissively and turns away. He'll be another addition to my army. I don't like the sound of that, whatever it means. I'm a reporter, I blurt. Raoul turns with a thin smile playing on his lips. I'm listening. Seemingly without a breath, I spill my credentials to Mr. Inez, finishing with my assignment from Harper's to find him and interview him. He listens and nods every few words, but he looks too amused to be taking me seriously. Seized by thirst, I stop talking. I glance to my left and look for my escape route. Seven heavily armed warriors are pointing sharp spears in my direction. 
A thought occurs to me at this very moment. Who knows I am even here? With no family, no real friends, no contacts other than publishers and photographers, there was no chance of rescue. Even Harper's has no idea where I am, other than a general sense I'm in the jungles of Brazil. If I cease to exist right here and right now, who would know? Who would care? You come with me, Raul says, and then barks at the group surrounding us. They part, allowing him to follow the asphalt trail. I am walking two feet behind him out of deference, and in case a chance to run materializes. I know I am too weak, hurt, and hungry to get far, but it will be better than dying. We enter a small village, seven huts in uniform order on either side of the road. There is a lone blind woman in what I take for the village center, with the road widening around a central pit currently ablaze. My eyes and mouth water at the same time. She is cooking an animal, and it smells like heaven. Thirsty, Raoul asks, and I know he is toying with me. I nod my head dumbly. My throat is dry and the back of my head throbbing. I know Raoul himself didn't club me, but it was certain he gave the order. I am led to a hut, but Raoul points to where I need to stand. I do, noticing the village is now surrounded by his army. He steps out with an earthenware jug and a plate of sliced meat. Without shame, I drink half the warm water and devour the meat, not caring what animal has made the sacrifice. Since there is nowhere for me to sit and try to relax, I simply stand, all eyes upon me. It is unnerving, but not enough to get me to stop shoving food between my parched lips. Do you write or tape? Raoul asks as I hand him the plate and empty jug and thank him. I am staring at him and he smiles. Then I understand the question and feel foolish. If I intend to stay alive, I need to keep my wits. I do both. It depends on the subject. I'd used both during a four-day interview with Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert Royce Gracie, who was in the midst of his second ultimate fighting championship reign. During his sparring, I would take notes, tossing out questions through the ropes at Royce and his training team. At night, after his shower, massage, and private time, we would reconvene in a nearby restaurant, and I would set the tape recorder before us. The article opened up several doors in the sports world for my career. Raoul goes back inside and returns almost immediately with a fresh pad of lined paper and three number two pencils. I smell the recently sharpened graphite and smile. The sense takes me back to grade school. I can't remember the last time I used anything other than a fine-point pen. I talk. You write, yes? Without waiting for the answer, he continues up the road at a brisk pace, and I follow. The road narrows, more of a footpath now, until we come across a fork in the path, running north and south. Directly before me is the waterfall that's been buzzing in my head since before meeting Raoul. We go there, Raoul is saying, but I already see the focus, a large cave mouth behind the spray, with the road wrapping around a natural lake that empties out in several places underground. Even having eaten and hydrated, I am still struggling to keep up with my host, and the trip around the lake takes us most of the day. As night falls, we reach the entrance. I am stunned by the size of the opening, at least ten meters high and equally as wide. The scene just inside stuns me. I lose count of the women and children inside, huddling over dozens of huge pots of boiling water. What is this? I ask. But I am fearful of the answer. The first step, 
Raoul says, and raises a finger for emphasis. I follow his gaze to the left, and I'm appalled. Fifty bodies tossed into a pile, naked and broken. Small children are pulling the corpses out one by one and dragging them to the women where they are fed into the cauldrons. I don't want to see the second step. Where are they coming from, I have to ask. Raoul laughs humorously. From neighboring villages and unearthed gravesites. I... I don't understand. You will once you see the second and third steps. Raoul moves me aside with a stiff arm as six of his warriors enter carrying three rotting corpses and dump them on the pile. They keep their heads down and leave quickly. Back to the village. You can rest and we'll continue the interview in the morning. Again, Raoul moves and I follow, even though we just arrived in the horrific place and I am tired. Closing my eyes, I get back my composure. At least I am still alive. I wake unrefreshed, having slept in the rich earth of the rainforest. A solemn warrior hands me a plate of fiuada, and I eat it slowly, savoring the flavor of the dish. A small flask of kachaka washes down the food, and I wish there were enough to get me drunk. It will help me with the day ahead, I'm sure. Just as the sun rises somewhere through the dark trees, Raul Inez is standing before me on the road, his khaki pants and jacket clean and looking pressed. Without a word, he motions for me to follow, and we take the long trek back to the cavern. During the day, there's much activity, warriors clogging the road and coming and going into the jungle, the women and children in small groups using the huts to sleep before heading back to the cave. They all give a wide berth to Raoul as he moves among them, ignoring them. Each pair of eyes is lined with fear. I am sure mine are as well. Past the initial cavern are several tunnels. Raoul leads me to the far right into a smaller room where women are busy piling the items stripped from the dead. Clothing, money, jewelry, even a pile of gold teeth. Nothing left sacred. We bundle the clothing and send it to those in need, Raoul says with a wink. Tax write-off. A modern-day Robin Hood, I thought, then stupidly say, Seriously? He suddenly stops and smacks me on the back. I hope he doesn't notice my flinch. Of course. I don't plan on hurting my own people, just the rest of the world. Our children in Rio de Janeiro scavenge on the streets like rats. Can you believe that? While our neighbors waste their food, city dumps overflow with their excess? I intend to feed my people for the next hundred years on the rotting heaps of the outside world. I don't really understand, I say frankly. He is confusing, and his English jumbles when he speaks fast. But you will, Raoul says. Still reeling over the thought of this madman worrying about a tax write-off while planning on destroying the world as we know it, I follow him into another room. I gasp and quickly follow it with puking. Raoul's laugh is evil and nasty and at my expense, but I am doubled over and spilling my breakfast at his feet. I stand and close my eyes, but when he puts a hand harshly on my shoulder, I open them and gather in the scene before me. The hallway has a low ceiling, maybe eight feet high in spots, but only ten feet wide, and it goes back so far that I know it has taken years to construct. Multiple tool marks riddle each surface, crude cuts by the natives, as opposed to modern machinery. I found them, Raoul says proudly. His brow wrinkles. 
Have you written a bloody word yet? Uh, no, I don't work that way. I need to experience this, commit it to memory, and then back at the hotel I write. Hotel, Raoul snickers. After I show you this part, you will write your article. Standing, fully erect, are perhaps five hundred skeletons. But there could be more because the hallway disappears into darkness. Unlike movies where the skeleton army is shiny white in uniform and size, this motley crew is varying shades of white, gray, yellow, and brown. They are just bones, and I have the insane image of them carrying curved swords like in a Sinbad movie. But they are weaponless. They don't move, yet they aren't being held up by rods or strings or leaning against the walls or one another. They are simply standing at attention. I don't want to know what they are waiting for. Impressive, no? The original two hundred I found here. Raoul begins to walk down the pathway between them, and I follow. He continues talking over his shoulder. A colleague had given me an impressive skeleton he purchased illegally from this very jungle. It stood of its own volition, and we couldn't figure it out. As we delve deeper into the hallway, Raoul lights a torch and continues on. I lose count as he keeps talking, straining to hear him. The subject began to speak to me, not with its mouth, but with its essence. It told me of its hidden brothers and the power of these cliffs, this very hallway that the ancients of Brazil had closed in. Many legends existed in Brazilian mythos about hidden caverns, secret creatures living in the jungles, and evil that flourished in remote parts of South America. I once did research on the Minocau, an amphibian monster similar to a huge earthworm. After a reputed attack in 1993 near Tocatins on a young girl, I was assigned to go and investigate by a seedy newsstand rag that paid quite well. Alas, as I landed in Brazil, I was told that the small child's uncle had been the culprit, and not a supernatural creature from the jungle. How many are there? I finally asked. Nearly six hundred in total, but the space can hold at least twice that. What will happen when it is full? Raoul stops and looks at me like I'm an imbecile. We march that army out and restock. March? I felt suddenly ill again, not sure if the stuffy chambers or this tall tale were the reason. Haven't you been listening? Raoul handed me the torch and pointed at the ground between the rows and rows of skeletons. Sit and write your article. Here? If I'd known you were coming, I would have had them build you that hotel you seem keen on sleeping in. Raoul said, "He looked tired and angry. Sit and write. I'll be back in three hours. Make every word count. Understand? And keep out of the way. We'll be adding another hundred today alone." I am in a hotel room in Mexico City, doing an article on a missing Seattle college student, going through the motions. Until this moment, I hadn't gone anywhere near South America, refusing repeated assignments from various media outlets. My article about Raúl Iñez was printed word for word in last month's Harper magazine, but so far, nothing. My editor simply took the story from me, did a quick edit, asked me several pointed questions, and then printed the article with the lead-in of Raúl having his mental breakdown while at university, leaving my article open for interpretation. Is Raúl Iñez a madman about to destroy the world? So far, the media has ignored my evidence. One off-camera reporter for CNN called it a hoax to further my career.
That night, as I am interviewing a supposed witness of the abduction of the Seattle woman, a colleague in the Mexican media pool tips me that a disturbance is happening in the southernmost part of Mexico. I leave and head to the airport. I have no idea where I will go, but know I need to get as far away from Brazil as possible. Thank you, Armand, and thank you for your patience. Armand Rosamilia has written over 100 stories that are currently available, including several series. Dying Days, an extreme zombie series, for example. There's a horror series called Keyport Cthulhu. For contemporary fiction, see his Flagler Beach fiction series and... Metal Queens, a non-fiction music series. Armand says he is a proud, active member of HWA as well. And, ah, yes. In addition to writing a passel of series tales, Armand has contributed a chapter called Writing the Series in the monumental book Horror 101 from Crystal Lake Publishing, a book on how to, why to, what to, and what not to, by some of the most notable authors in the horror biz, which Armand is. You can find him at http colon slash slash armandrosamelia.com for not only his latest releases, but interviews and guest posts with other authors that he likes. And you can email him to talk about zombies, baseball, and metal from there. Anyway... His homepage will be on our homepage, TalesToTerrify.com, and eventually on our Facebook page. And thank you, Mike Boris, for your narration of Rainforest of Bones. Mike is a ceramic engineer by degree and a professional narrator of e-learning courses by choice. Although born and raised in New Jersey, Mike now resides in the Midwest of the United States, the father of four strapping boys, Mike is also a certified scuba diver, has toured a good part of Western and Central Europe, singing for dignitaries and common folk alike. He has driven across the breadth of America with four kids and a wife and lived to tell the tale. He has parasailed the mountains of France, served breakfast in Vienna, wearing a woman's skirt, and performed as Mr. Potato Head with a traveling Renaissance fair. He's a Libra, likes to take long walks along the beach, and revels in a good single malt scotch. He has narrated stories for The Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, Tales to Terrify, Escape Pod, and The Drabblecast, and swears that all of this, with the exception of one item, is true. So there, children of the night, I have tried to keep myself on the down low this evening. Maybe I was successful. But now, be off with you, as M.R. James might have said to his guests at a tale-told evening. As you head home, be aware of the potential for pompous cats of various sorts 
and of the dark trees that are just now coming into their full foliage. There are most likely many fewer than 2,000 birds and mammals in the local hood, at least ones that might be capable of drawing you off the beaten path and, well, having... Well, still, you will make it home tonight, I am sure. You'll embrace the light, the good things in your fridge, and the clean softness of your bed. Don't forget, however... Always count your bullets and watch where you aim. That will lead to ever-pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you for listening. 